All right. Welcome back to Coffee Conversations and Badasses Podcast. Now, listeners, viewers, I know you're watching. I know you're listening. Hit that subscribe button. Hit that like button. Let's get the alerts going so you know the newest and greatest and latest episodes coming up. But this episode that we're about to get into is going to have your blood boiling and your heart pounding. And without further ado, this is Angela Mayora. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me today. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. Now, your story is kind of very, I wouldn't say unique, but unique. You were a victim of childhood trauma by your mother. Correct. Walk us through what, how did it start? What's your first recollection of this stuff happening? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I, I pretty much blocked out most of the first 10 years of my life because it was so traumatic. Um, my mom tortured us. She did various things, um, you know, something that I can vividly remember her doing is one of her favorite things to do to us was stab us with forks. So it was me, my brother, and my sister. I was the middle child. My brother was younger. My sister was older. But she used to stab us with forks, hit us, um, beat us with spatulas, um, she threw me outside in the snow naked when I was 11 years old, um, that I stood out there for a half an hour, um, just hanging out until I was allowed to come back in. So it was just a lot of that my entire, you know, for the first 14 years of my life. Wow. That's, that is, that is very hard to one, even just to comprehend and hear. But when people go through this, this trauma at a young age, it really does something to us developmentally. Like, wouldn't you agree? Like, wouldn't you say it blocks something out and creates more difficulties going through like school, life, social? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have to this day, like I have no idea how I got through school and graduated high school. I was absolutely 100% of the time not present. I was just scared all the time. I was just a little scared, scared little girl. And I just didn't know when the next violent thing was going to happen. And I was in a constant hypervigilant state and it was, it was not good. But your mom wasn't just somebody just working an office job nine to five. Your mom was actually somebody who served and protected the citizens of, of a city. She was a police officer, correct? Correct. She was a San Diego police officer. Um, I, I remember her one time when I was a, um, younger picking me up in her police car and I was remembering feeling like, wow, I want to do this. Like I, even though she abused me, I wanted so much for her to be proud of me and I wanted to be like her. Um, and yeah, she was a police officer. And when the cops came, when she would beat us up or beat uh, my stepdad up, they would come in the house and they would see her police picture up on the wall and immediately my stepdad would be in handcuffs, no questions asked, and we would be sent to our rooms. Like she never had to face any consequences. Um, not only was she a police officer, but she held the key to a vault for Union Bank of California. Um, she drove a bus for San Diego Transit, one of those huge buses with the accordion in the middle. So she always had, you know, great careers, but she was abusive. Wow. So her abusive kind of led to her changing careers often just because of of an addiction possibly? Yes. I didn't realize that until I was older and I actually saw the pattern and I understood the pattern, but I, I mean, I can't say for certain, but I believe so. 
Um, actually, I do recall that she did lose her job at Union Bank of California because she would go into work drunk and she messed up on the money one too many times. She wasn't balancing at the end of the day um, properly, so they ended up firing her from that position. It's it's weird what addiction does to people because it allows people an avenue to escape, but then allows for another type of abuse to happen in people's homes. I, I, I've i witnessed it uh, when I was a young kid with my uncle and my aunt. You know, my uncle would get drunk and he would just, after about five or six beers, he would take all his rage and frustration out on her. You know, she didn't do anything wrong. It was just whatever he had pent up growing up. So, and there's no excuse. Alcoholics and drug addicts, there's no excuse for abuse, especially an innocent child, you know, stabbing you with forks, throwing you outside in the snow. Like that's pure evil right there. That is evil intentions. But you you went through high school and you graduated, which speaks volumes because that's a difficult thing to do with your social pressure. Now, what happened when you, you didn't live with your mom at a certain age, right? You kind of moved on. Yes. When I was actually, when I was five years old, um, the social workers and the police came in and took us away um, just for two weeks. And then they gave us back to her. I was in a foster home for two short weeks with my sister. My brother was um, little. He was, I was five. So my brother was four. He was younger. He went to stay with our great aunt and uncle. And we went into a foster home just for two weeks where I was abused by the foster children there. And the foster parents, when I told them, they just sent me to my room. It was physical abuse. They would just hit me and things like that. Um, But yeah, that lasted for two weeks. And then when I was 14 years old, um, I got taken away and went with my great aunt and uncle for a bit, but then into foster care. So from 14 to 18 years old, I was in 16 foster homes and six high schools here in San Diego. Wow. Wow. And you still, still be able to graduate. That was, that's amazing. What so going through foster homes? How how was that experience? Because the first time you went in there at age five, you were abused. So you already had this kind of like premonition of like, holy crap! I know what I'm getting myself into going into a foster home. Did that carry over when you were like sixteen? Did the abuse keep going in these different foster homes? Yeah. So I definitely had like. Um, an idea of what I thought it was going to be like immediately when I was being taken um, to a facility. Because when I was five, I remember being taken to like a holding tank where you wait for a foster home. So it's not an immediate thing. So you're in this building and there's all these other kids waiting to be placed. And some are upset, some are crying, some are being violent. And it's just a lot of madness. Um, But, you know, I was, when I was 14, I was put there for a good probably a good month just waiting for a foster home. And my psychologist decided that he wanted to be my foster parent, the one that had been seeing me for a month. So he went through the process and became my foster parent. I went to live with him and he ended up being an alcoholic. He didn't abuse me, but every night he would go get home and go in his room and get drunk. I was allowed to go in there if I had a question for him or I needed to ask him something or I needed help with something, but he would just lay there and be drunk. And I just remember smelling the liquor and it it really affected me in a bad way. 
How did you how did you get out of that foster house? I got on the phone with my social worker and I I told her because I wanted to die. I was suicidal because I couldn't believe that they took me away from one alcoholic and put me with another. I was baffled. And I got on the phone with my social worker and I asked to be removed from the home. And she removed me and I went back to the holding tank. So not only was I in and out of 16 foster homes, I mean, that was 16 times that I was sitting in this place waiting for a home. Wow. I, I, I can't imagine, you know, going through that, you know, because one, a sense of family is just gone, right? Sense of security is just, that's not even the thing for you as a kid. How did you feel secure enough going into a home and what made you decide to switch out of a different home? Was it one alcoholic house to another or one abusive house to another? Is that what, why so many transitions in the, in the foster care system? Yeah, no. So, I mean, it wasn't me, right? Like I was a, a fairly good kid considering everything that I had been through. You know, I, I, I was, I, you know, I was in survival mode, you know? So when it was time to move on, like, here we go, like put, put my bootstraps on and freaking let's do this, you know? And I just went in with a positive attitude as positive as it could be. And the reason I moved around so much was because I couldn't stand being somewhere where I knew that I was only there because they were getting paid. Like they wouldn't take care of me. They would get paid to have me, but I needed underwear. I needed toothpaste. I needed things and they didn't care. They didn't ask me if I need help with my homework. And the second I figured out that I was just there because they were getting money, I got on the phone with my attorney and my social worker and I got moved. I didn't want anything to do with it, but I wasn't abused um, except for that. Uh, when I was five, but nobody abused me in any of my foster homes. Oh, wow. That's, that's really good. I, I think it's the commonality with a lot of people is they only take foster kids in because they get paid. So they don't really have to, I don't know if they don't have to work. I'm not going to say that, but it seems like most people who are doing foster care are fostering several kids and they don't typically work or they have an addiction. How would you, have you ever thought about like, how would you change the system, the foster care system? I would just, I would 100% uh, make sure that the interview process was more intense. Um, that, I mean, I don't know exactly how the process is now. Like I would definitely recommend that they interview people in their lives to see what kind of person they are to show some sort of caring nature that they would have. Um, yeah. When I was 18, well, they just kicked me out. They just, I was out in the world on my own and I had no, I, no clue. Like I would definitely, I hear now in San Diego that they have extended it to 21 where even if you leave the state, at least somebody's calling you and checking on you. But back when I was a foster kid, it wasn't like that. Well, it, the track record speaks for itself. If you have a family that's a foster care family and they have people constantly coming in coming out asking to leave that would be a sign there's a problem there's that's a sign that they're not getting taken care of right i mean that's how i see it like you went from 16 foster homes wow how can we couldn't have done one or two and getting a kid into a caring family to take care of that child yeah they saw me as the problem I was the problem in the system's eyes. 
I was the problem and they were actually threatening me to put me in a group home, which would mean just this big house with all these other foster kids and like one, a couple of adults watching us and like taking care of us, if you will. And to me, that felt, that was, I was not having that. That was going to feel like prison to me. I didn't want that. Sure. I, I can only imagine you didn't want it. Now, going through the foster foster care system, do they give you like a psychologist or psychiatrist or are you going are you getting any kind of help? Because obviously you've gone through something to be put into a foster care system. Yes, I was court ordered to see a psychologist along the way and I was very resistant to that at that age. Um, I would go in and I would say, "Hi, how are you?" And then I would just shut down. I would just stare at the person. I remember this one psychologist in particular. I would literally stare at her for an hour. I, I didn't want to participate. Wow. Do you know to, why? Do you I know why now? Why you didn't want to participate? Yeah, I didn't want to talk to a stranger. I didn't feel like they would understand. Adults weren't safe to me. Mm. That's, that's powerful. That's some powerful shit right there. That is, I, that chills me to the fucking bone, really does. And it strikes a nerve because this is America. We can do so much better than that. And I'm hoping that the foster care system has been changed. You know, it's the government system, so <laughs> it moves at a very snail's pace and it takes a lot of things for it happen, happen for it to change. But, you know, for all the kids are going through foster care system now. How would you, what, what kind of negative advice would you give them? Because you, you spoke on a little bit, you touched on a little bit that you were suicidal. I imagine that you weren't the only one going through the system that felt the same way. Yeah, I would absolutely encourage them to um, speak up in those Counseling appointments, you know, I know now how much because I was as an adult in psychotherapy for 17 years and it helped me tremendously to get where I'm at today. And back then, if I would have started and talked and trusted that adult, then things could have been, uh, I believe, way different. But I would just want to tell any foster kid that's going through what I went through right now that there is hope and that their circumstances do not define them. Their decisions define them. That's that's great advice. That's great advice. So when you turned eighteen, kicked you out. How did you uh, how did you navigate to this new world? I mean, you've already navigated this world and probably had to grow up quite a bit, just in and out of different places. How did you navigate the new world? Yeah. So as I was approaching 18 years old, I would, I was getting hounded a lot by my social worker and my attorney and all the adults that, um, cared about me because I really believe that those people did care about me. Um, they kept asking me, what are you going to do? You're about to be 18. Like, what are you going to do for a job? Have you thought about it? Like what's going to happen? And I said, I've been telling you guys for years that I'm getting a basketball scholarship. And I was like one month away from turning 18. And they said, well, have you gotten any offers yet? Like what's going to be happening? And I said, no, not yet, but I'm going to get a basketball scholarship. Like, please back off. Like it's going to happen. And um, I had my all-star game at the end of my senior year and I lit it up. I had 33 points 
And uh, we ended up losing by one point, but I don't want to talk about that. (laughs) 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 And uh, my, my friend on my team, her dad put together a highlight tape of me for two, two seasons and he sent it all around the country and I did get a basketball scholarship. So for me that, you know, I was really happy because I was able to get away from San Diego. I had two recruiting trips to Hutchinson, Kansas and Sheridan, Wyoming, and I picked Sheridan and I was able to get away from my mom. And I took my girlfriend with me at the time to my scholarship. And I told everyone to the college and I told everyone that she was my cousin because I didn't know how they felt about homosexuality in Wyoming. And I didn't want to put myself or her in danger. So that's how I I kicked off my adulthood, if you will. Um, I only ended up staying there for a couple months, but all I cared about was numbing myself. I started drinking alcoholically when I was 16 years old. So I was already two years deep into it. And I was just not ready for the academic challenge. I just still was not present. Yeah. I mean, I can, because now you have the sense of freedom. You're an adult. And you're like, I'm not going to another home. I'm going to the home that I provide for myself. And in college, now it's just, you're into a whole different atmosphere. It's like, all right, let's go party. But, you know, were you drinking? You weren't drinking to go to parties. You were drinking to numb what was going on with you when you were 16, right? Yes, absolutely. I didn't want to feel it. I needed alcohol to survive. The second I took my first sip when I was 16, I knew what I was doing. I looked down at it, the beer before I took my first sip. And I knew that if I drank that I I was, I was called, I called myself an alcoholic immediately. And I understood why my mom drank because she didn't want to deal with her childhood where she had an violent father who was also an alcoholic. So I needed it to survive. And that's all I cared about was my next drink. I didn't care about anything else. I was in survival mode. It's, it's crazy how generationally you can pass down very bad habits and traits like alcoholism. You know, I, I think most of us have an alcoholic in our family or know an alcoholic um, or been affected by an alcoholic in some way just because it's so prevalent these days. But the abuse is what's astonishing is how somebody can go get violently abused and turn into that same monster and say, that's okay to raise my kid the same way. Look how I turned out. Fucking says, I, I, don't, I don't get that. I can't, rather, I can't wrap my head around that kind of mentality. But you knew the first sip, boom, alcoholic. You know the road you're going down. Two months into college in Wyoming, what happened? Why, why didn't you stay in college? Uh, my coach pulled me into his office and pointed out that my uh, grades were terrible. And I just knew that immediately I, I had to be transparent with him and get honest with him and not... He didn't, I didn't tell him I was an alcoholic, but I told him that I, I, because of, he knew what I had been through, you know, as a kid. And, um, I said that those things were stopping me from focusing on my studies and that I was going to be leaving. And he was extremely upset and disappointed because he had all over, written all over his face because he put a lot of effort into recruiting me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what goes into the recruiting cycle but I can imagine it's not easy. And especially probably he saw something in you that, you know, 
he maybe not see very often. So was basketball, when did you start playing basketball as a kid? I started playing basketball when I was 10 years old. I was a soccer. I've been an athlete my whole life. So I loved soccer before that. I was wild with soccer. I loved soccer. Then one day I came home from school when I was 10. This is one of my favorite stories. When I, when I was 10 and nobody was home, which was true, extremely odd because my mom is abusive as she was. She was extremely overprotective. We couldn't play outside in the fence, small fenced yard, unless she was out there watching us. She didn't let us ride our bike down the street. She was afraid we were going to get hurt. Like that was strange. So I would never, whenever I got home, there was always somebody there, but this particular day, there was nobody there. And I get in there and I'm tired. So I sit on the recliner and I grab the remote control, which we were never allowed to touch. And I turn on the TV. I'm like, this is perfect. And I'm going to be able to mess with it. I had to figure out how to use it because I don't think I had ever used a remote. And so I was flipping through the stations and I stopped at basketball and I was watching and my mind was blown. I saw Michael Jordan playing for the first time. And I was like, holy shit, I have to start playing this sport. And my mom came home and I never asked her for anything. I was very afraid of her, but I asked her to take me to buy a basketball and she happened to be in a good mood and she did. And I still have the receipt for it. And I played basketball for 30 years. So basketball is the reason that I survived my childhood. Wow. Wow. That was your outlet. Yeah. Big time. That's, big so you time. still play basketball today? I shoot around. Nothing too crazy. <laughs> but my mom used it against me too, though. Like, I started playing on a team when we were living in Ohio and then, you know, she knew how much I loved Michael Jordan and she, she would be racist about that. Um, you know, and she would, she knew that, that he had a game that night and I'd love to sit on her bedroom floor and watch it. And she would punish me by telling me I couldn't watch it. So, but it didn't, it didn't affect me. I would close my eyes and see him playing, you know, I was obsessed with basketball. That was like what I used to survive. Damn. I used to carry my basketball with me. I used to sleep with my basketball. Always had my basketball. I would play in the rain and everybody at school was like, what is she doing? And I said, I'm out here to be the best. And I was the best. Wow. That's that's awesome. I mean, that's a great that's a great story. And time and time again, if you go back and you know, I'm don't want to say that you would be an all-time great. I'm sure you would. I'm sure you can handle the ball. because uh, I'm terrible at it. I've tried. Oh man, it's like two left feet out there on the field. I don't even know why. I'm pretty athletic, but me and basketball, I try. I like I like playing basketball as a pastime, uh, but I'm just not the. I'm the last one to get picked. You have to have extremely yeah. high hand eye coordination. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. It, it usually I do. I like football, baseball. I'm decent. Basketball, pff, it loses me. I go up there and just like. Boop, I'm like, where, what? I didn't even hit the hoop. I mean, like, I, I totally missed the basket. Like, how'd that happen? Um, I blame it on my feet. So, you know, feet placement. Instead of, you know, hitting the square, I'm like this. But uh, that's great, man. Finding the outlet is probably one of the biggest things for kids to do if they're going through a tough, tough life as a young one is finding an outlet because isolation and drugs is not it. You know, if you can find basketball, find soccer, baseball, football, lacrosse, art, reading, some kind of healthy outlet, you're probably going to come out okay with a little bit of more help. Yes. So you leave college, 
And did you leave with your girlfriend? I did leave with my girlfriend, yeah. Where'd you guys go? Uh, we went to Virginia Beach, Virginia. We took a Greyhound out there. I remember stopping in D.C. on the way. And then we got to Virginia, and that's where her parents lived, her mom and her stepdad. And we lived with them. And that's where I got my first job. In Virginia Beach, Virginia. Yep. I was working at the Old America store. And it was uh, like Michael's was their competitor. So it was like an arts and crafts store. And I was a cashier and my girlfriend worked there as well. She worked in the floral department. Wow. Well, yeah. So how were you in a relationship with your girlfriend, if you don't mind me asking? Did you, um, did you transfer that same mentality that you were raised with, with, with your girlfriend? Or were you abusive, controlling, anything like that? Yeah, great question. So throughout all, uh, most of my relationships, you know, when I was younger, I was abusive. Um, physically, I would say I was ab- absolutely abusive because one time I grabbed my girlfriend and I left bruise my finger. I could see my fingerprints, bruises on her. I saw the next day. Um, but besides that, physically, no, but absolutely emotionally abusive. I could cut somebody down with my words in a big, big way. And I learned that from my mom. And I know from the abuse that I had with my mom, that words for me hurt more than the physical abuse. And I was very, very good at it. And I would make my my girlfriends cry and I wouldn't stay. I would leave. I would abandon them. I would stay eight months, gone, eight months, gone, eight months, gone. That was like an eight month thing for a long time. Wow. Wow. That's, that's a... One, it takes a lot for somebody to admit it. And thank you for being vulnerable because that alert. Did you just hear that alert? No? That's so fucking weird. Oh, well, fucking technology. Uh, What do I say? (laughs) Um, Anyway, it takes, takes a lot for somebody to be vulnerable and to admit that. Because one... People don't understand that is part and how you get healthy is admitting that, hey, I know what I did wrong. I did some shit wrong. I get that. You know, I have to let that go because that's not me anymore. That's not the person I am. So you you get out, you uh, you go to Virginia Beach, you're at Old America, which I have no idea what that is. I've never even heard of that. Now, Michael's we've heard of, but Old America, I was like, what is that? Is that like the Old Navy? Is that what they used to call Old Navy or, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, American Eagle? Yeah. Just like my yeah. name. That's, that's nuts. Uh, that's funny. And, you know, to think that Old America is not around anymore, I don't think. No, nope, I don't think so. And I was, I, I stole from them. I stole well, my jobs. I stole to support my habit of drinking. Really? So you, so your alcoholism led you to, what did you steal? Well, the stealing started when I was in Wyoming and that's one of the reasons that we left Wyoming. I was in a store and it was like a sports store. And I walked out with uh, Nike socks without paying for them. And somebody came out and stopped us went back in and I threw them outside on the sidewalk before I walked back in. And they're like, let, give me the socks. And I'm like, I don't have socks. Like I lied. You know what I mean? And my girlfriend ended up taking the rap for that. And we had a court date 
And that combined with me doing, getting pulled in by my coach and doing bad and all of that, then we just left. And then when I was at the old America store, um, I was stealing as well from the cash register and I never got caught. Wow. I, I you know, uh, any kind of store, I, I'm surprised how they didn't catch you, but I imagine you weren't taking two or $300 at a time. You're probably taking what? Five, 10 bucks, maybe 50, hundred. No shit. Yeah. And then how long did you work at uh, old, old America? I was probably there like three months. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So just about enough time for them to really start catching on and see if there was something there. Maybe um, I dipped. So I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Deuces. I got to go to my next victim. See you later guys. These are not things that I'm proud of, you know, but I want to be honest with our listeners and just let everybody know what, what you know, my, share my experience, strength and hope, say where I was and where, where I'm at today. And be honest. That's where, and that's why we showcase. That's why we tell our stories because we have to say what happened to us when we're, when we're younger to get where we are today. If we just go right directly where we're at today, People will be like, well, this guy never lived a life. This woman never lived a life. You know, I'll share a story that I don't think I, I have never shared publicly. So you're going to hear this for the first time. I was 16 years old and I was going to my mom's house at the marina, uh, Lake Tinkiller, Oklahoma. And I didn't have swim trunks. So I stopped in the mall. I can't remember if it was JCPenney's or Macy's. Stopped in the mall along the way in Shawnee. Walked in there. And uh, I've never stolen anything in my life. But I didn't have swim trunks. I wasn't going to show up to the marina without swimming trunks. So I get several pairs of shorts and swimming trunks. But everything else was just a facade. The one pair that I really wanted, I folded them up and I put in the middle. So when they gave me the tag for however many items of clothing I had, they didn't catch the one in the middle. So I walked into the dressing room, took my pants off, put the swimming trucks underneath my pants, pulled my pants on. And this is not, I'm telling you how, how to fucking steal, so you better not go out there and use this fucking move. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, hey, none of these fit. Thank you so much. And I walked out of the mall with them. As I was walking out of the mall, a fucking cop car pulls up. Mm. My asshole puckered so damn tight, and I probably was walking like a duck. Like <laughs> it was, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like, and I was gonna run, like for sure. I was going to run over a pair of swimming trunks, mind you. So I was ready to kind of like book it, and the cop walks by me. He's like, "Hey," I was like, "Hey." He walks in. I was just like, speed walk to the car. <laughs> I got in the car. I was like, I'm out of here. And it was the only stop I made. I only made, I only made that stop to steal, to steal a pair of swimming trunks. And I say that because it's, it's important to recognize, like, we fuck up. You know, especially when we're under influence. And we're smoking pot every fucking day. We fuck up. But that's part of life, but it's part of recognizing who we are today. It's part of how we built our character today. It's by fucking up. But uh, we're going to get back to your story here, and we're going to take a little bit. We're going to take a five-minute break. So listeners, don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit that alert button. And we're going to come back after this break and hear the rest of Angela's story. 
And the show wouldn't be made possible without our sponsors, Red, White, and Badass Brew, and Go Man Go Productions. Your vision is our mission because we see it too. Welcome back. If you haven't been listening, you should be listening because Angie Stor- Angela's story is riveting. From uh, being abused as a child, going through several foster homes, and the minute she took a sip of her first beer, she knew she had a problem. Angie, stealing from stores, you're fitting the habit. What changed? At some point, you went in and said, okay, I'm through with this, because you joined the military. You joined the Navy, correct? Air Force. Oh, air, well, I'm not going to dog you on the Air Force, you know? That's uh, good. Don't insult me with the Navy thing again. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'm you kidding. know, I will say this about the Air Force. They always have good food, and you know you're going to be comfortable. So you're not going to have a bad stay. Um, exactly. I mean, shoot, even in Afghanistan, they had the best food and the best living situations. Uh, and they also, I will give, you know, I will give you guys props. You saved our ass time and time again. And <laughs> you, uh, when we didn't have cold weather gear, you actually supplied us with some. So, you know, a bunch of freaking Navy guys out there with Air Force cold weather gear. So thank you. You know, <laughs> the love. <laughs> yeah. But so you went into the Air Force. When did you decide to go into the Air Force? I decided to go into the Air Force when I was living in Panama City Beach, Florida. Um, I was out there uh, with one of my girlfriends, a different girlfriend, because I was one relationship to relation to relationship. And I was working at Walmart. And so I'm so I'm 20 years old. I'm working at Walmart and I'm working at a a car wash on the beach in Panama city beach, Florida. And I was just at Walmart one day working the cash register and it just, 
occurred to me, I was, started thinking about it. I was like, my sister is 22. She has her master's degree. And my brother is in the, just joined the Marine Corps. What in the world am I doing working at Walmart? So I went home that night and I told my girlfriend that I'm leaving. And I packed up the car and my 86 Chevy Cavalier. And I drove across the country to San Diego and I joined the United States Air Force. You know, they have offices closer than in San Diego. <laughs> right? Like, not the only one. <laughs> I know. I just wanted to be near my family and, and just do it there. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. So it was more to come home, kind of. Uh, and when you say family, what family are you talking about? Um, my great aunt. She was very pivotal in my upbringing. My great aunt, my great uncle. My great uncle died when I was, uh, her husband died when I was um, 16. She was still around and she was everything to me. So. Her her place was my home. Okay, that's I mean that's that's a big part of the part of your story is these pivotal people in your in your life. Now, you can you San Diego join the Air Force. What did you do in the Air Force? Security forces. All so right, police. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so you're kind of following in that same footsteps. Yep. As, as your mom, and yep. all the signs are there. You're still an alcoholic you're in police you're in the police force on uh, in the air force and was that the career that you loved did you grow to love law enforcement no but it's still no. what i wanted to do because my mom told me that i was dumb when i was a kid and i believed her she told me that I was dumb and that I was going to fail at everything that I did. And I was never go- gonna, going to amount to anything. And I believed her. And I knew the, co- the career path of law enforcement for me in my mind was doable because I didn't need a college education to do that. So my plan was to join the Air Force, to be a police officer. I scored very high on my ASVAB. My recruiter tried for days to talk me out of being security forces because he said I could have all these other great careers, but I didn't want it because I didn't think I was smart enough. And I knew that once I got out of the Air Force that I was, my goal was to be a police officer or a correctional officer. And I didn't have need a college education for that. So. So you didn't, uh, so you didn't stay 20 years, obviously. Nope. In the Air Force. I signed for six. I did three and a half. Oh, what what happened? What cut the uh, career short? Heel spurs. I developed plantar fasciitis, pains in my heels. They did surgery on my left heel. And two weeks later, they called me in to, to check on my status. And I came in on crutches and I said I was still in pain. And they said, bye-bye. They medically discharged me. Oh, wow. That, that quick. Like they didn't even... Tried to do any other remedial. They're just like, yep, ain't going to heal. See ya. Yep. What'd you, how'd you take that? I was very happy. Really? I was happy. I was miserable I, in Las Vegas. I did not. I was, it didn't matter where I was or what I was doing. I was not comfortable in my own skin. And, but particularly Vegas, it was a terrible place to be. It's great to go for a few days to be on the strip <laughs> and to party and, gamble and all that, but to live there in the Valley and and the Air Force Base was in North Las Vegas, which was a bad area. Like I just absolutely hated it there. So when I got told that I don't have to be in the Air Force anymore and then I get to go home, I was very excited. So you get, you get, but 
still you haven't dealt with the alcoholism yet. You're still, oh. so you, you get out, you get out of the Air Force. What did you do after you get out of the Air Force? I took my girlfriend with me at the time. She was living in Las Vegas with me. Uh, they gave me $10,000 severance pay. And we went um, to San Diego together. And we went to got an apartment. And we went to Ikea and furnished the apartment. And I told her, you use the car and go figure out what you're going to do. I'll walk around and find a place to work. And I'll just walk to work every day. So I walked down the street to a place called Mailboxes, etc., which is similar, exactly the same thing, like as a UPS store. Um, so I got a job there and I was there for two and a half years. Yeah. I, had oh, no, wow. I had no clue what I was going to do. I mean, I that, thought in my mind, I thought there's no way I can be a cop. I just got medically discharged. I'm disabled veteran. No one's going to hire me. So that, and I didn't even try. And I had no clue, no clue what to do. So that's why I just what? did that transition, so going into the military and transitioning out, I think a lot of us have that same feeling. It's like we're here one day, we got our support one day, we're with our team one day, and then the next fucking day we're just on the street going, where am I at? How am I going to accomplish life? I don't have my support structure. I don't have my guys right here with me. I can't talk to them like I used to. How was that transition? How did you transition from the Air Force, which, you know, Air Force does, I think, a lot of things right, better than the other military, other, other, other branches. But that transition, I think, across the board sucks. I don't think it could be, it's not taken care of at all. Did they kind of prep you for it? Did you get prepped for that transition? No. They just gave me my $10,000 and said, there's the gate. Have a nice life. Like there was no, no preparation at all. No, no transition. It would, they did not help me with my transition at all. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't send you to like a transition assistance program or nothing. Nothing. Absolutely. Wow. Nope. Nothing, nothing. Wow. So everybody listening, this is the stance we need to take because we can do better by our veterans transitioning out of the military. This is a disgrace. This is the best country in the world and this is how we're protect and this is how we're treating the people protecting it. Absolutely disgrace. In Absolutely. My, in my mind, I think that the military should help members that are getting out discover their passion. A lot of people think that they need to find, I need to find my passion. You don't find your passion. It's not something outside of you that you go looking for. You're, everybody has their passion inside of them. And it's about discovering their passion. Because how can you just go out and get a random job? Like I was in survival mode. That's what I did. If I would have known what my passion is and I'm aligned with my passion today, there's no limits. But I didn't know that that back then and they didn't help me at all. I was just on my own. Well, that's, I don't know. So it didn't seem like you did, you did what most veterans do is they go out and they use the post 9-11 bill. You know, that's, that's what I did. I, right when I got medically retired, I was like, well, Survival mode. You know, how do I have infusion of capital? The GI Bill. That's the fastest way. In 30 days, I, I can sign up for school in two days, get that rocking and rolling. 30 days later, I'm going to have a check in the bank. I'm going to have some money to live off of. You yeah, know, I knew I had my post 9-11 GI Bill, but I didn't know that I would get paid while I went to school. I didn't know that. 
Um, but wow. besides that, like there's that's, no way I was just, deep into my alcoholism. I was deep into my alcoholism. I wouldn't been able to to do school at that point in time. Sure. Yeah. And, I was dumb. and in my mind, I was dumb. There's no way I could go to college. That was a whole, the whole purpose <laughs> I chose security forces. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even with other people telling you, you're brilliant, you're smart. It doesn't matter how many people tell you unless you believe it yourself. That's the person who has to tell you is you, not anybody else. Because other, other people can help build you up, but you have to believe it in yourself. It's just Absolutely. the key. That is a key to fucking life. But you go to, then you're, you're feeding the habit. And that's the most important thing. It isn't about putting food on the table because if you had to choose over a burger or a beer, which one would you choose? The beer. Yeah, right? I don't care you how know? hungry I was. <laughs> right. This is feeding something that you think your body needs more than this. Yeah. So at what point, and so what kind of, so you worked at the Postal uh, Express for a couple of years did you go in law enforcement after your career, after your military career? Yes, I did. So I had other jobs after uh, mailboxes, et cetera, but ultimately I ended up um, becoming a correctional officer for the state of California. That is, so again, you went from one career to the next, to the next, and the problem still persists. How was it being a correctional officer for the state of California? Well, until I got assaulted, which is the reason that I got retired, I thought it was amazing. I was comfortable there and it made so much sense. Like if to me, it was fun. It was just a game. Like I was just hanging out, babysitting grown men, um, being respectful, respectful of their house. But uh, at the same time, I was being disrespectful with certain things that I was doing in the way that I was acting because it was difficult for me as a female in an all male institution. And I felt the need to prove myself in certain situations. Um, but after I got assaulted, I had amazing doctors. I never went back after that. I had a psychiatrist and a psychologist that helped me realize why I was comfortable there. I put myself back in my childhood. I inserted myself back in my childhood, not realizing it the most insane thing that I've done to date. Um, I was used to the hypervigilant state. Walking into prison, I had to be in a hypervigilant state. Who's around me? Who's, who's, you know, what's happening? Constant hypervigilant state. Like when I was a kid, I was used to the blood, the police, the violence. I was used to it all. It was my comfort zone. So how did you, how did you disrespect their home? Well, one night it was time for them to come out of the housing unit to go eat. And I got called uh, a female dog, in, in other words, a bitch, right? And after they all went into chow, I went back into the housing unit and I told the officer up top that had control of the cells to pop this guy's cell open. And he had pictures. He was, a, I didn't, I didn't know this until after I did this, but it would not have made a difference. I still would have done the same thing. He had pictures of naked females everywhere, which was considered contraband. You can't have that stuff in prison. 
He had been collecting that stuff for over 25 years. I went through and I tore it up, everything. I tore everything up the wall. I flipped his house upside down. And he was not a happy camper when he came back. So in a way, I mean, it was definitely disrespectful, like, to do that. I wouldn't want somebody coming into my house today and, and tearing all my stuff up, right? But at the same time, I felt that I had a need to, to prove myself. And I take it this guy who's been in the system for 25 years was a lifer? He was a lifer. Yeah, so he didn't have really much to lose. Is that the same guy, is that same guy that assaulted you? No. No, so a different guy assaulted you? Different guy, yeah. Why why would somebody assault a CEO in a besides the fact that they have nothing better to do? So yeah. it was one night I the came over the radio for the officers to step outside of the housing unit because it was a voluntary inline where the inmates were allowed to come back into their cells if they wanted to. So I stepped out and the officer that was supposed to step out with me didn't want to step out because she wanted to sit there at the podium and essentially in my, my eyes be lazy because they asked us both to step out and that was like protocol, but she didn't want to. And so I was a little nervous about stepping out by myself on the yard with over a thousand inmates, but I had no choice. So I stepped out by myself. This inmate was approaching me. He was really, I could tell like something was going to happen. He was really nervous. So I turned around to look at my housing unit to see if my gun was at least watching me, the officer with a gun up at the window and he wasn't there either. So I was literally by myself. And, but I, I knew that he had something or he was up to something. So I asked him to come over to me and I searched him and he pushed me and I hit my head on the ground and uh, got back up, chase after him. My head was bleeding um, I put the yard down and he was the only one running. So I stopped and I had a ton of blood um, on my hand after touching my head. And that's, that was what the assault was all about. But the reason that he ran was because he had a cell phone on him and that is also contraband in prison. So he didn't want me to, to find the cell phone. So that's, so he had to suffer the consequences for that. I find the, I find the cat and mouse game in prison just fascinating you know i mean because these guys are in here for a reason or gals they're in there for a reason right and you're, you're essentially there to do a job you know but the cat and mouse thing is, is fascinating it's like how much can we get away with how much should we get caught you know but to me like is it worth getting caught like if he got caught with a cell phone would anything really happened Great question, because I was just going to say, because this is how I was, too, as an officer. Like, if he would have walked up on me because he knew he turned around because I had to search him. And then if he would have just said, hey, Martinez, that was my maiden name. That's what it was at the time. Hey, Martinez, you know, I have a cell phone in my back, right? I'd have been like, very well, give it to me. And then I would have put it in my pocket and that would have been the end of the story. Yeah. Like, I yeah. wouldn't have even written him up for it. But instead, yeah, it caused this whole thing where he was an ad seg for over a year where he was like completely isolated. And he put him, now he had, a, he had assaulting a uh, peace officer on his record. Like he put himself through all that for what? Like a lot of times too, I would go in and I would find stuff in their cells during the cell searches. And I would just tell him, hey, next time fucking hide that shit better. I took it. Or sometimes I let him keep it, you know, depending on what it was, if it wasn't going to hurt somebody else. But they just wanted to, they... They just wanted to play games a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, I hear a little bit about it. I had a, you know, somebody else on talk about the CEO life. And, and then I had a couple uh people who have been incarcerated and talk about it. And just the two worlds colliding is this kind of a fascinating uh, ordeal. 
So you you get medically retired out of the correctional uh, system, and now now what? But you still haven't dealt with the root of the problem at this time. Ooh, exactly. I was I was on cloud nine when that happened because I just got to sit at home and cater to my disease and drink up a storm, and I was getting paid as if I was there. So I had the money coming in. My girlfriend at the time tried to kill herself. So she, her parents put her in Newport beach in a treatment facility. So I didn't have her interfering with my drinking. Why did she try to kill herself? We just got into an argument one day and I went out to the pool. I had, we both had been, you know, drinking. I had went out to the pool to hang out. And a couple minutes later I got a call from her and she sounded really out of it. Like, like completely, like she could barely talk. And it wasn't even like I drank too much, a slurring type situation. I knew immediately that she took, she had done drugs or something else was in the mix. And so I said, where are you? And she wouldn't tell me where she was. So I ran back in the apartment. She wasn't there. And I just got in my car and I started driving around El Cajon. And I had no idea where she was, but I was just driving around like aimlessly. I, I had no clue. And I happened to find her vehicle. And she was in there and I thought she was dead. I called 911, but no, she, she didn't die and her parents put her in treatment. Now, what did, uh, how did she try to commit suicide? I know to this day, to this day, I don't know. And it ended up being that she had an eating disorder. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating how people go around and, and, and their last kind of, uh, Hey, I need help type of thing, you know? Um, but it's, it's crazy that somebody can get to that point and ask for help then, then hide. So you found her, she went through now after she got out, did she successfully complete the program? She did complete the program. Yes. And you guys meet back up and get back together after that. Um, I had went out for like family day or whatever, but it, I could just tell like, it was just not going to work out. Like it was just weird. And it had been about eight months. So it was my time to move on anyway, <laughs> like my thing. Right. But while she was there, like it didn't, it didn't even occur to me to address my issue. Right. Like when it initially happened, when she left and I was drinking and I was just sitting at home, like just carrying on drinking and driving. I did that all the time. And it didn't occur to me until a few months later. And while she was um, in treatment, I got sober. Really? Yeah. So yeah. you, at that point, so what made you get sober? What, what's a defining moment that you said, I've, this is enough. Enough is enough. Yeah. It was a three year anniversary of my mom's death. My mom died in 2007 um, from drinking alcoholically. And it was a three-year anniversary of her death. It was about 6 a.m. I went to the local store, like I usually did. And I picked up a huge bottle, a handle of blueberry vodka. I sat in my vehicle, my truck, and I drank the whole thing within about 30 minutes. And I went to my friend's house. She knew I was coming over. Um, and I picked her and her daughter up. Um, her daughter was about three years old at the time. I picked them up. And we were driving around San Diego all day, just carrying on, going to the beach, just I was drunk all day long and we went and had sushi and I was drinking sake and Ichiban till it's gone and just drinking, drinking, drinking all day. And then we get to Lemon Grove and I'm taking her home and I'm on the surface street, speed limit 35 miles an hour. And there's a police officer behind me. And normally when I was drinking and driving, which was 
all the time for 16 years. I would fix myself when I saw a police officer behind me. I'd sit up straighter. I'd put my hands on the 10 and the two on the steering wheel. I would slow down. I would be really cautious, stop at the stop signs like a little extra longer, right? Or the, the stop lights, just fix myself. But I did immediately when I saw him behind me, I looked over at my friend and I almost said it out loud, but I didn't. I said to myself, I need to go to jail today. This is the only way that this madness is going to stop. I'm going to kill myself if I keep drinking, just like mom did. And so I hit the gas as hard as I could. I was weaving recklessly in and out of vehicles, going as fast as I could, and I did not get pulled over. About two minutes later, I was still on Broadway in Lemon Grove, and I see a police officer on the side of the road. It was the strangest thing. There was no police car near him, but he was standing on the side of the road, and he was pointing a radar gun at me. And so I hit the gas, and I went about 70 miles an hour zooming past him in a 35. Nothing happened. He didn't, I, nothing happened. I take my friend home. I remember taking my friend home. I went home. I remember changing, getting into bed, going to sleep the next day, which was February 5th, 2010. I woke up in a panic. Holy shit. I wanted to go to jail the day before. Like my alcoholism took me to a whole new level. I was a correctional officer that had been assaulted, hanging out at home. And then the next thing you know, like I wanted to go to jail, like, that's insanity at its greatest in my mind. And I was so thankful that I remembered. So how did I deal with it? I decided to go drinking that day with my cousin to have beers at Bull Weevil. And I told him, I'm going to go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous when we're done drinking today. So we had some more beers and I went to my first meeting. Drunk. Well, tipsy. Wow. Wow, I don't think that's a normal thing for people to do. Uh, go out drinking and be like, yep, my last who all then hit an AA meeting. So you went to the AA meeting, and from that day you've been sober? Yeah, I never picked up again. I just took 13 years sober February 6th. No shit. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you so much. That That is amazing to actually hear because not typically people go down that road of like, my last hoorah, and this is it, and I'm getting help. You know, but I can understand because the day before, you wanted to die. You know, you wanted to die and go to jail. So now that you are sober, and you've been sober for 13 years, what are you doing now, and what are you doing differently? Because you're not in correctionals anymore. You're not in law enforcement anymore. What are you doing now? Oh, now, 11 months ago, I became an entrepreneur. I was working at Rady Children's Hospital, San Diego. I was there for nine years. That was one of the biggest blessings of my sobriety. I was there for nine years uh, working in the emergency room. And 11 months ago, I decided to walk away to be an entrepreneur. I no longer wanted to work for somebody else, which is what I had been doing my entire life. I discovered my passion because I was sitting in the hospital night after night knowing that I wanted to leave. And I started writing stuff down. I'm like, what have I been through in my life? What have I experienced? And I looked at those things and I said, I want to be a life coach. I want to help others. I've been through so many things and gotten to the other side of things. And I immediately knew that's what I wanted to do. And 
yeah, that was 11 months ago. And today I own nine businesses. It was eight up until yesterday. I own nine businesses and I started working on my PhD. Really? So you are now happy, healthy, you work on other people, you know, but life has a funny way of rearing its head sometimes. And you still kind of are going through a little bit because recently something else has kind of happened that hits you kind of close to home, right? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I'm also a, a motivational speaker, uh, the best motivational speaker on planet earth and all of the other planets. So I, I know a lot of things today, right? I've learned like we all do and I, I'm a knowledge seeker, um, but you're absolutely right. Life on life's terms, you know, sometimes stuff's going to come up and, you know, we don't have control over what happens, but we absolutely have control over how we react. So um, in October, October 14th, in the morning of October 14th, I literally left the hospital, walked away from the hospital. And two weeks later, after I became an entrepreneur, I got a phone call on October 14th. It was my oldest nephew. And he called to tell me that his mom was dead, my sister. She was found in Oceanside at a bus bench, dead with a bottle of vodka. And I recently found out that she was so drunk sitting there on the bus bench that she tipped over and broke her own neck. So for the first two months, I feel like I handled it as well as I possibly could. She left behind five children and a husband with no job. Um, but I paid for everything. I paid for the funeral. I got the family there. I got the flowers. Um, you know, I did feel it. You know, I cried. Um, you know, I was going to AA meetings. I was talking to my sponsor. You know, all the things, right? So that I stayed sober. And come December, I wanted to die. That two months, it started eating at me. I started dragging up my childhood stuff. And it was a lot. I couldn't handle it anymore. And I wanted to drink. And I wanted to throw away 12 years of sobriety. And I wanted to jump off the Coronado Bridge here in San Diego. And instead of doing that, because our circumstances don't define us, our decisions do, Instead of doing that, I decided to check myself into a psychiatric hospital. Hands down, the most difficult decision I've made to date in my entire life because my mindset, don't you know who I am? I'm this professional and I've done all these things, had all these careers. And I'm so, now I know how, I mean, I'm a genius. I know how intelligent I am. And I'm going to put myself in a psychiatric hospital to hang out you know, with these people that I felt like I, I was so much better than them. No, I'm not better than anybody. And that's exactly what I did. And I was there I voluntarily for three days and I got to the other side of it and I didn't drink. And here we are. You're still sober. You're still alive and you're thriving. And that's, what's important, you know, is hitting these road bumps in our life. We're going to continue to hit road bumps. But if you put the work in today, those road bumps won't be as big. They'll be very tiny and a minimal, minimal bump. But you have to put that work in today, right? Yeah, absolutely. Then so we'll how would... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. So how would you tell somebody going through this part of their life, dealing with another death in the family... How would you seek out and say, hey, this is what you, this is my nugget of knowledge. My, my life coaching experience would say, what? 
Yeah, so I've had 17 major deaths in my family, including mom and sister. And death is so final. It's not an easy thing. But what we need to realize, and here's my nugget, and if you listeners, if you don't hear anything that I say, please hear this. Our experience of th- anything in life, all experiences are neutral. Let's start off with that. Everything that happens is absolutely neutral. And our experience of everything that happens is our thoughts about what happened. Well, that's the thoughts. Thoughts are what haunt us. Actions are what create us. How do we get past the thoughts? Well, we all have between 60 and 70,000 thoughts that run through our mind every day. We have zero control over what we think about. That's a fact for everybody. But what we do have control over is what thoughts we want to attach ourselves to. And today, I only attach myself to positive thoughts. When the negative thought comes, I don't judge it. I just greet it and tell it to move on. Like, thank you for stopping by. Next. And I'm bringing those things to my conscious mind because a lot of the garbage happens in our subconscious mind. So I'm extremely self-aware. And I love myself today. And that's changed everything. That's the nugget that I was looking for right there. You love yourself because that is the most important thing. You can't move forward if you don't love yourself. You can't. You have to be comfortable with you. I had a guest come on and one thing he told me was be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that resonated. I was like, wow, that's actually everybody who's going to be coming on this show needs to be comfortable with being uncomfortable because that's at some point in their life, they're going to have to deal with this situation again because we're going to be taking a bite of a shit sandwich again at some point in our life. Angela? That's, yeah, that's where the growth happens when we're uncomfortable. Growth doesn't happen when we're comfortable. That's right. That is 100% true. Angela, thank you so much for coming on this show. And you know what? You are a badass. From... Getting abused as a kid, moving from home to home, and dealing with a problem and an addiction, and one day waking up and staring it in the face and saying, not today, I'm fucking done. You are a badass, Angela. You are. Thank you so much for coming on the show and telling your story. Now, you have nine businesses. Which one, or do you want them all them to go show? Which one, where, where can people find you? What business are you wanting them to come and seek you out in? Yeah, so if, if any of you need a speaker or a life coach, I can be found at AngelaMayora.com, A-N-G-E-L-A, my last name, Mayora, M-A-Y-O-R-A.com. But that's my passion is my speaking and, and life coaching and helping others get to the other side of tough stuff. And what better person than somebody who has been through a lot in their life? Angela, again, thank you for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. And I wish you the best. I appreciate you, man. Have a great day. Thank you so much. All right, listeners, do not forget to like, subscribe, and hit the alert button. And go check out Angela's episodes, the other episodes, and... Pick up some badass red, white, and badass brew coffee.
If you have a heroic story and you'd like to share it, get in contact with us. Our information's in the bio. Also, don't forget to hit the subscribe, like, and share. And then I'll see you on the next episode, badasses.